Well, I um, was looking forward to an extra hour of sleep, but I think I've reached that age where um, that is a pipe dream because I was still up at my normal time before my alarm went off. And, uh, but I do notice there may be a few more of you here than normal, and I was just thinking that maybe some of you forgot to change your clocks. Although I don't know that that's an issue with phones like they are now. Who cha- Do you really change clocks anymore? I, I don't know if that's a, as big a deal as it used to be, but for whatever, whatever brought you here, I'm glad you're here. If this is your first time, I want to say a special welcome to you and let you know you picked a great Sunday to, to come for the first time because we're beginning a brand new series today. Uh, one of the things that we do at Southside is we'll have a conversation that will last for four, anywhere from four to eight weeks, and we'll take a subject and we'll talk about it. Uh, sometimes that is based on issues that we face and challenges we face in life. So we just finished up a series where we looked at what the Bible had to say about money and how we manage our money. And so we talked about that. We explored the Bible about that. Sometimes it might be marriage or family or other issues and challenges we face. But then there are other times where we'll just take a section of the Bible and say, okay, what does this section of the Bible have to say to us? What can we learn from this section of the Bible? And, and we're entering one of those series right now, and we're going to be looking at a little book called Ruth. And I'm going to invite you now to go ahead, if you're using a paper Bible, to start looking for it, because it may take you a while. If you're using electronic, it's much easier. Uh, but if you go to your Bible and begin uh, from the beginning and, and go right, you will uh, eventually get to a little book called Ruth. It's right after Judges. If you get to 1st, 2nd Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, you've gone too far. But go ahead and find that book, and we're going to try to figure out now, what does Ruth, this story that is thousands and thousands of years old, what does it have to say to us today? What can we learn from not just this character, but this story that's been recorded and has been an encouragement to so many people for so long? I'd like to give you just a little bit of context of the story, where this fits in God's big picture of what God's been doing. Um, if, if you are familiar with uh, just God's movement through the people called Israel, you know that, um, that they were enslaved in Egypt and Moses came along and uh, God used him to, to help deliver the people out of slavery in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. Uh, they were given the Ten Commandments. They spent 40 years wandering around in the desert, in the wilderness. They finally go into the promised land. And when they're in the promised land, you think, okay, great, finally, you know, this, this is what we've been headed for. Uh, but, you know, everywhere you go, there you are. I don't know if you found that out or not. You know, everywhere you go, there you are. So the Israelites, all the problems they had before, all their brokenness, all their sin, it just went with them into the promised land. And so cycle, time after time, there was this kind of this 40-year cycle where they would get into the promised land, they would enjoy God's blessings, and they would forget about God. Now, I know none of us have that problem, but they did. Uh, and so, then, so soon, then what would happen is there would be... Uh, Pagan, pagans from around them would begin to influence them and oppress them, and there would be all kinds of bad things that would happen. And, and in their, the middle of their suffering, they would sort of wake up and say, whoa, wait a minute, we've forgotten about the Lord. Hey, God, would you please help us? And as he always does, he responded. And he would respond by sending them another person uh, that they would call judges. And these judges would come and, and sort of help Israel to, to sort of get back on path with worshiping the Lord. And they would throw off their oppressor. And there would be about 40 years during the life of the judge. Everything would go well. Then the judge would die and people would forget again. And they'd go through this cycle over and over and over again. And at the end of the book of Judges, we find a verse that really captures the culture of that day. And here's what it says in Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So there was no higher authority. 
There was no sort of political authority. It's, it's not just anarchy. It's sort of just this moral anarchy. There, there, was, there was really nothing guiding or leading the people whatsoever. Yet this isn't how God left them. Eventually, it would get better, at least politically. Uh, they would eventually have a king. The king's name was Saul. He wasn't a very good king, but after Saul would come another king. King David, and this would be a guy that, that God would say, hey, this is a man after my own heart. And out of this king, this king is going to represent for all the people, there's going to come a savior. And it's not just going to be beneficial to Israel. It's going to benefit the people of all the earth. Everybody on the, on the earth is going to benefit from this savior that's going to come from David. And here's what it says about this king, David, in Psalm 78, verse 70, talking about David. He chose, God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. He wasn't, a, uh, he wasn't somebody powerful. He was just a, a little shepherd. From tending the sheep, he brought him to, the she- she- to be the shepherd of his people, Judah, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. So you have this image of God's people kind of being she- like sheep without a shepherd. David comes along and, and God puts him in a position where he shepherds his people But out of the chaos of Judges chapter 21, and long before the security that we sort of see in Psalm 78, there's the story of a woman whose name is Ruth. See, before David was king, before he penned his first psalm, before he led an army, before he killed a giant, before he tended any sheep, before David, there was his great-grandmother, and her name was Ruth. And this obscure woman, who was a foreigner, she wasn't even Jewish. Uh, uh, Really, according to the Jewish customs of her day, uh, she would not have been anyone that they would have even thought should be a part of their tribe. They sort of had this very closed idea of who's in and who's out. But God had other plans. And and Ruth could have never imagined that her great-grandson would be the king of Israel let alone be called someone who was a man after God's own heart, a God that she didn't even know or didn't even worship. See, Ruth's story begins with tragedy and loss, but it culminates with redemption. The story of Ruth is a love story, but it's not a love story the way Hollywood would tell a love story. It's a love story the way I believe God intended love stories to be told. And the book of Ruth helps us to unlock a secret, a secret of what love really is, of a generous love, of an enduring love, of a steadfast love, of redemptive love, of a love that turns tragedy into triumph, a love that will not only change your circumstances, but that a love, if you pursue it, will change you in the process. You see, I think in our culture today, maybe this has been true of all times, but I certainly know it's true in ours We are sold the lie that love is an emotion, that love is a feeling. All the great love stories you see on the big screens in the movie theaters that you download, that you watch, all those stories just tell you that love is sort of a chance and a circumstance. And and whatever those chances and circumstances, if they can evoke just the right emotions from you and just the right person at just the right time, then you can experience love. But the story of Ruth tells us that love is not a feeling, it's a choice. See, feelings will always change with your circumstances. But I love what the playwright William Shakespeare said. Love does not alter when it alteration finds. Isn't that the kind of love you want? 
That's the way you want to be loved, isn't it? You want somebody to love you in such a way that if you wake up and have a bad day, that person loves you anyway. And that if you mess up and you drop the ball, they still love you and forgive you and move on. And the question becomes, are we capable of loving other people the way we most desire to be loved ourselves? And that's the story of Ruth. And so this morning as we begin, hopefully you've already found Ruth chapter 1. We're just going to look at the very first five verses in the book of Ruth because I think it teaches us something really important that's counterintuitive and it certainly goes against the grain of our culture and what our culture wants to tell us about love. And that is just this, that love is forged in the crucible of suffering. Love is forged in the crucible of our suffering. It is forged in the crucible of sacrifice. But if we're not willing to sacrifice, and if we're not willing to endure hardship, and if we're unwilling to suffer, we'll never know the benefit of the kind of love that we all desire the most if we run from it. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land. Now, we already know that everything that's going on in the book of Judges is the context for the story of Ruth. Ruth's story happened sometime in all of that chaos. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So we see that in this town of Bethlehem, there's a famine. There's a famine in God's land, and this man and his wife and their two boys pick up and leave. Now, the irony here would not be lost on the people who first read this story because Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And so there's a famine in the house of bread. There's no bread in the house of bread. Things were not as they were supposed to be. Things were not how they were planned to be. This was not the way it was intended to be. And sometimes that's our circumstance, isn't it? Sometimes we want to blame God and say, God, why did you allow this to happen? But do you know that suffering was never God's plan for us and plan for the world? He had something far better in mind. But as the consequences of my own choices and brokenness and our choices and and other people's, we live with the consequences and struggles of brokenness that affect all of us. So things weren't as they were supposed to be. And so this guy says, you know what, we're going to leave the promised land. Now, anytime in the Old Testament you read people leaving the promised land, it was an act of unbelief on their part. And so he was was relying on his own plan to provide for his family. Rather than waiting on whatever the Lord was going to do to deliver him, as God had done time and time again throughout the book of Judges. They had been through famines before. They had been through defeat before. And over and over again, as they cried out to the Lord and as they waited on God, God would show up and he would redeem them and he would rescue them. But this man and his family, they didn't wait. They went ahead and left. They were not willing to endure the suffering. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab And they remained there. Now, this is really significant. I know sometimes when we find these names and names of people and names of places in the Bible, we just kind of skip over them, you know. We don't know how to say them, and so we don't think they carry any real significance or or meaning. And, and, you know, you think, well, you just stood up there. You sounded like you could really, you really knew what you were talking about. Listen, if you just say it with confidence, people think you're right. That's all you have to do. So if you're ever put in a position to read something like Ruth 1, 2, just say it with confidence, and people will think, oh, I didn't know that's how you said that. 
But, but here's what's interesting about the Moabites, this, this place where they were going. Uh, a lot of scholars refer to the Moabites sort of as the Israelites' hillbilly cousins. They were connected to the Israelites, but there was bad relations between Israel and Moab all along. Literally, the word Moab, Mo is a word in in Hebrew that means who, and Ab means father. So literally, this place is called Who's Your Daddy? Okay, Who's Your Daddy? Now, why is that the name of this place? Well, this goes all the way back into Genesis. You remember the story of Abraham, who's the father of, of the nation of Israel. And Abraham had a nephew named Lot. And Abraham was called by God to leave his family and to go to a land that God said, I will show you this land. I want you to step out on faith, leave your family and go. Well, Abraham, just like many of us, he obeyed God, but not quite exactly right. He took Lot with him when he really wasn't supposed to take Lot with him. And you see throughout the story of Genesis, it starts in Genesis chapter 12 and it goes on. You can read the story how there's all this conflict and tension between Abraham's descendants and Lot's descendants. And eventually Abraham and Lot kind of part companies. And so Lot decides it's a good idea. He can get a good deal on a house in a little town known as Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot takes his family and he goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. And this place is really bad. And God says, I'm going to destroy that place. And Abraham says, wait, God. My nephew Lot lives there. Don't destroy that place. And Abraham kind of negotiates with God. And finally, God says, well, I'll let Lot and his family get out. So Lot and his wife and their two girls leave the city of Sodom, and they're on their way out. Lot's wife really doesn't want to go. She ends up dying. So it's just Lot and the two girls. And Lot takes the two girls, and they go to this remote area of the mountains, and they live there. That's where they live. There's nobody else around. And the two girls soon figure out, hey, we're never going to have any children. Dad's going to get old and die. And so, um, so there's a, a story of incest. I mean, some of you are thinking, you need to read your Bibles, all right? Genesis chapter 19, I'm just telling you, read it. You wouldn't put some of this stuff on public television. So you you go in, and and the child that's born is named Moab. And so this Moab becomes the father of this nation known as Moab. And then years and years later, when the Israelites are walking across the desert, and they're trying to get into the promised land, they need to go across Moab. But guess what? Moab says, you're not cutting across our territory. So there's all this tension. So when Elimelech leaves Israel, it's not just the fact that he's leaving Israel, but he's going to a place that has always represented this tension with God's people, this tension with God's plan. And and so the Moabites and the Israelites were always at odds all through the Old Testament. And Elimelech decides to take his wife and their two boys, and they head of all places to Moab. In verse 3, we read this, but Elimelech, The husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. And the irony here is that the word Elimelech means God is king. Naomi, her name means pleasant. So the irony just continues because now God is king is dead, and pleasant is a widow, and there is no bread in the house of Israel. So Naomi... This poor lady has been driven from her home because there's no food. She's been led to a foreign land by her husband. Her husband then dies, and then she's left with these two boys all on her own. But the situation is just about to get a little bit worse. Look at verse 4. These, the two boys, took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. 
Now, it was forbidden for Israelites to take foreign wives. And this wasn't a racial thing. It was an issue of keeping pure religion, of keeping their pure worship of the one and only true God. And every time the Israelites began to mix in with the people around them, it wasn't just that they were mixing in with them uh, biologically, but they, were, they would begin to be led astray to worship these false gods. And so the law was, you're not to marry these foreign women. And yet these two boys did. After their dad died... They married these foreign women, and it reminded me of something that I think we need to remember. If you're a parent today or if you ever plan on being a parent, the choices that you make will put your children in a position to make different choices. That Elimelech, I'm sure, did not intend for his boys to marry these foreign women and and violate God's law. And yet his decision to pack his family up and leave, put his children, put his wife in a position where that's exactly the choice that they would make. Now, they made that choice on their own and they're responsible for it. But do you know that the choices that we make, sometimes we are faced with limited choices based on the choices generations before us have made. This is generational sin. And it's why it matters that you prayerfully consider the decisions you make because future generations may, may look back on what, the way you lived your life and the choices you made, and they may be faced with a different set of choices based on how you choose to face the challenges that you're facing right now. And just when you think it can't get any worse for poor Naomi, it gets a little worse. Verse 5, they lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the women, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So the only thing worse than being a woman without a husband and sons would to be a woman without husbands and sons and the responsibility of the sons' wives. And so now Naomi found herself in a situation where there was no safety net. I mean, women who didn't have a husband or a father or sons to care for them had no alternative in this society in this particular day and age. It could not be worse for Naomi. And this is how Ruth's story begins. It starts in tragedy. And I think that's the way a lot of love stories begin. But oftentimes we see the tragedy as the end of the story and not the beginning. And we fail to understand that the tragedy itself may be the very place where the love that we most seek can be made and can be experienced. But there's some barriers that we throw up. I think we learn a couple from these five verses, barriers to love. One, I think, is a temptation that Naomi struggled with, and that's bitterness and cynicism. That, that, that something begins through the tragedies of life, something inside of us begins to grow bitter and cold and cynical. And, and so you have a, one hardship and you think, okay, that's just a, a, a bad circumstance, a situation, I'll go on, but then something else bad happens after it. And it doesn't take too long, too many bad circumstances happening one right after the other for you begin to question God, does it? We've all been there. And if you haven't been there, you'll get there soon. And I want you to know it's okay. God's big enough to handle your questions. But what we have to be careful that that doesn't happen is that we begin to grow bitter and we begin to grow cynical. And for some of you, that's exactly where you are now. You're bitter and you're cynical. And your bitterness and your cynicism is keeping you from experiencing the kind of love God wants you to experience. The irony is the disappointment 
has put you in a position where the very thing you need to bring healing to your broken heart is the very thing you repel by your cynicism. There are people who avoid you because you're cynical and bitter. And you might not know that, but I can tell you it's true. Because all you have to do is think about yourself. Do you enjoy being with cynical and bitter people? You don't. See, cynicism and bitterness becomes an obstacle to experience love. That's exactly what Naomi was facing, what she would have to overcome in order for her to experience the love she was seeking. The second barrier to love is escapism, that we just seek to run away every time suffering, every time it gets difficult, every time it gets hard, we try to find a way out. And so if there is no bread in Bethlehem, we'll try to go find our Moab where we can at least satisfy our temporary need. Maybe your Moab is at the bottom of a bottle of alcohol or prescription drugs. Or maybe your Moab is on the internet. I don't know what your Moab is. But as long as you try to escape the pain, as long as you're trying to run away from the suffering, you'll never fully experience the love that can be forged in the middle of the pain and the suffering. I love what Paul Miller said. He wrote a book on, on Ruth. And here's what he said about this. Love will not grow if you check out and give in to the seductive call of bitterness and cynicism or seek comfort elsewhere. We have to hang in there and with the story that God has permitted in our lives. As we endure, as we keep showing up for life when it makes no sense, we learn to love and God shows up. How many times have you ran away from the suffering and the struggle? Or have you sought to medicate the pain And in so doing, maybe you've missed God in the midst of your circumstances. See, I I believe this. I believe that our love for God is forged through suffering. I love one of my very favorite passages is found in an obscure little minor prophet called Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. On the back of your guide this morning, we put some of these notes down. Some of you need to circle this and read it later. Some of you need to write it down and put it on a card and on your mirror in your bathroom or memorize this. Because this is where you're living. You feel like Naomi right now. I know some of your stories. I don't know all of you, but I know some of you, and I know you feel like Naomi right now. But I want you to listen to Habakkuk, and the difference, the, the difference Habakkuk, how Habakkuk faced a different, difficult circumstances as compared to the way Elimelech faced them. Listen to what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. That sounds like what Elimelech was facing, doesn't it? Famine, disappointment, discouragement, hopelessness. But that's where the similarities between Elimelech and Habakkuk end. Because listen to what Habakkuk says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Sometimes you have to look at your circumstances and you have to say in the face of your circumstances, I will praise the Lord. And you are convincing yourself more than you're trying to convince anybody else. And you just bear down and you say, listen, I know there's no fruit on the vine. And I know the cattle stalls are empty. And I know the cupboards are bare. And I know the bank account has been depleted. And I know that that no good, sorry person left me alone with these children. And I know I'm facing obstacle after obstacle. And it looks hopeless. But I will praise the Lord. 
I will not turn away. I will not give in to cynicism and bitterness. And I will not run away to Moab. I will stay and endure the hardship. And in so doing, I know God will be my redeemer and my deliverer. Our love for God is forged through the suffering. But our love for others is forged through suffering as well. One of the most famous passages in all the Bible, read at almost every wedding, is 1 Corinthians 13. And it's a definition of love. And I picked just some of those words that define out love for us to look at. Love is patient. Right away we have a problem, don't we? (laughs) It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil. It always protects. It always preserves. Love never fails. Let me ask you a question. Maybe you've never considered this. Maybe you've never thought about this as you've thought about the kind of love you most desire. But let me just ask you this question. How can love be love if it requires no patience? If you're never put in a situation where you're required to be patient with a person, can you really say that you love that person? If love is first, patient. Let me ask you another question. How can love be love if there are no wrongs to avoid recording? If the person that you say you love only and ever does exactly what you think they should do and what is right, and they never do anything to wrong you, and there are no wrongs to record, can you say you really love that person? How can love persevere unless there's a struggle against which it must persevere? See, here, here's what I'm asking you. Here's what I'm saying, suggesting. That if love is forged in the crucible of suffering and you're unwilling to suffer through with the people that God has placed in your life, can you really say you love them if every time it gets hard, you leave? If every time they require patience on your part, you don't give patience. If every time they do something wrong to you, you're keeping some mental list, can you really say you've experienced love? I'll tell you the answer. The answer is no, you haven't. Because if love is patient, then love must require you to be patient. If love doesn't keep record of wrongs, then that must mean people are going to wrong you and you have to love them anyway. If love perseveres, it must mean that the circumstances are going to be hard and you're going to have to persevere or it won't be love. And here's our challenge. As we learn to love other people through the crucible of suffering, to identify a person or a situation that requires tenacious love on your part and give it. What's a circumstance? What's a person in your life right now where it's trying your patience? And instead of avoiding that person, what if you pressed into that person? Who is it that has wronged you and you've got a mental list? Do you want love to grow in your heart? Throw the list away and go love that person anyway. Where's a circumstance that you face? What's a relationship that, you, that is requiring perseverance on your part? And you're just about to give up. And you're just about to walk in the, out the door. And you're just about to throw in the towel. But what if instead of doing that, what if you pressed through the hard times? Because that's what love does. My challenge is for you just to find somebody like that and love them. Love them with patience. Love them with perseverance. Because you will never experience the power of love without the sacrifice that love requires. 
And so many of us are looking for love. We're trying to find it. We're trying to find what it looks like when it's on the movies or when it's on television. We're looking for it. But every time hardship comes, we run the other way and we avoid experiencing the very thing that we long for most because every time it gets hard and every time it requires sacrifice on our part, we leave. And you'll never experience the power of love without the sacrifice love requires. And God demonstrated this for us. God demonstrated this for you. That God's love for you, God's love for us, was forged in the suffering of his son, Jesus Christ. Scott said it earlier, that before the foundation of the world, he knew what would happen to Jesus, and yet he chose to love us anyway. Listen to what Jesus said shortly before his crucifixion, Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, in the face of terrible suffering, said, Lord, is there any other way? But if there's not, I will go through the suffering. Hebrews 12, 2 says, look to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That God's love for you was forged in the suffering of his son. That God, it says in Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for you in this, that while you were still sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were inflicting pain and suffering on God, God pressed into our circumstance. He pressed into our situation and said, I love you anyway. And this is the model he's given us. This is the example he's set for us. And I just wonder this morning... With you being here, and I don't, I, there's no accident that you're here today. Whatever brought you here, whatever circumstance you, there's no accident. But I wonder if somewhere in the depth of your heart, you are craving the kind of love that will endure. The kind of love that will be patient with you. The kind of love that will not keep record of your wrongs, but will love you exactly the way you are with the flaws and with the faults, if you are looking for that kind of love, can I tell you, the evidence that you will struggle to find it anywhere is also in yourself. Because you will struggle to love people the way you yourself want to be loved, right? We do. I do. I know the way I want people to love me, but I am often resistant to love other people the same way. Can I tell you that God has that kind of love for you? And that he gives you the kind of love that you can have for other people when you don't have it yourself. But it begins with a relationship with him. It begins as you endure and press through the suffering of your own brokenness and sin and recognize that God has loved you right in that place of brokenness. He doesn't love you as you should be. He loves you as you are. And then he gives you the ability to love the same way. But it requires surrender on your part. It requires submission on your part to say, God, here's where I am. Thank you for loving me that way. And, and I want that kind of love in my life. I want the love of Christ in my life for my own eternal benefit, but also for the benefit of all those around me. And if you're here today and that's the deepest cry of your heart, please don't leave until you've had that conversation with God and invited that kind of love to invade your own heart. Because love is forged in the crucible of suffering. And you will never experience the benefit of love until you're willing to endure 
and face the sacrifice love requires. Will you pray with me? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to just remind you of the commitment card that Tina distributed, shared with you earlier in the front of your worship guide. Um, There's a place on there. Um, I know this stances and situations. If you'll mark that on there, we'll follow up with you. Maybe today you would just say, I want to know what it means to surrender my life to Christ. Maybe I want to to know what it means to be a part of this body of believers. I want to rededicate myself to love. I want you to pray for me that I can love people the way I myself want to be loved. Maybe you're facing a Naomi kind of situation. You just need people to walk beside you. Use that communication card and let us know. A little bit later, we'll receive the offering and you can place it in there. Father, I pray during this time, Lord, not knowing the circumstances that everybody's facing, just specifically this morning for the Naomi's in our midst. Father, for all those who have faced hardships and struggle and thought, just when it couldn't get any worse, the bottom dropped out again. And they're facing the battle of cynicism and bitterness. Lord, I pray that you would guard their hearts and protect them. And I pray that you would give them the steadfast love and faith to endure the suffering. That in spite of the fact that there's no fruit on the vines and the cow stalls are empty and the bank account is empty, Lord, that they will be determined to have faith in you anyway. And to wait and to see redemption that you have in store for them and in doing so that they'll experience love like they've been searching for their whole lives lord may today be that day for all of us father for those who are here who are facing circumstances with the people around them faces facing circumstances choosing whether or not to pull away or press in lord may we remember that your love always pressed in that your love never failed and never gave up. And Lord, may we, may we tap into that love as we seek to love each other. Lord, I pray during this time that you'll be glorified. I pray during our time of offering and our time of commitment that it'll be more than just money that we place in the offering plate, cards that we drop in. But Lord, I pray in this moment we'll commit ourselves to the kind of love that requires us to sacrifice ourselves and give up, give up our own wants and desires and to know that that's exactly the way you loved us. For we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.